Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is fulfilling big, bulky, small parcels with my friend Dusty Holcomb. Guys, I talk to a lot of people on my podcast. I talk to a lot of fulfillment people on my podcast, and I've learned a few things. One of the things I've learned is most companies don't want anything to do with big, bulky, small parcels. But we all, as consumers, want stuff that sometimes is big and bulky. Secondly, everybody's suffering with labor shortages. It's really hard to get people to work in a warehouse. The guys over at Red Stag Fulfillment, Dusty and his team, they are a different breed. They specialize in big, bulky, small parcels. Now, keep in mind, a lot of big, bulky stuff ships via LTL. These guys are shipping it via small parcel. And that's a great thing. Well, you learn, listen to the podcast and learn more. They've also built this great culture over at Red Stag. And when I talked to Dusty a few times, he refers to his team as the herd, affectionately, as the herd. And he always talks about the care and feeding of the herd. I love what they've done there, the culture, the specialization in something that most fulfillment companies shy away from. Red Stag says, that's what we do. And Dusty is a fantastic leader. I love what they're doing. Check out the podcast. But before we get to the podcast, I want to tell you about my friends at Tusk Logistics. That's T-U-S-K logistics.com. If you're a small parcel shipper, you can save 40% with Tusk. And the way you can save 40% is Tusk has a great technology and they've connected a whole bunch of regional small parcel carriers. These are carriers that have been in business for a long time and they're excellent service, better than the big guys in their region. But you could never use them because they were just regional. Tusk has connected these guys into a national network. You can save 40% and have better service. And in addition, you get Tusk's technology, which is top-notch, plus you get Tusk, uh, their customer support. Overall, you can't lose. You get better service than you're going to get from the big guys, and you get better technology from the big guys, and the, and the service, um, the delivery time is better than the big guys. 40% savings. Do it. TuskLogistics.com, and right at the top it says get started. Click on that button and get started and save 40%. So how's it going, Dusty? Good morning, Joe. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you so much. I really appreciate having you on my podcast. We had started a podcast, uh, oh God, it must have been three weeks ago, and we had this horrible internet connection because you were on the road, <laughs> and we got about 40 minutes into it, and we had to redo it. But anyway, I'm excited. It was great talking to you, Get great getting to know you, but we'll get this one recorded for everybody. So Dusty, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. Yeah, my name is Dusty Holcomb. I'm the CEO of Red Stag Fulfillment. We're an e-commerce logistics partnership organization, and we are headquartered in Knoxville, Tennessee. And that's where I'm calling in from today. Very nice. Very nice. So now the tongue twister that is this title, Fulfilling Big, Bulky, Small Parcels. That is almost like an oxymoron. So it's small parcels that are big and bulky. Please explain. <laughs> Yeah, so it, it is a it is a tongue twister, and I'm not going to try and say it because I'm not good at those things. You know, ultimately, what we do is we enable e-commerce companies to grow their businesses, and by doing the heavy lifting of e-commerce. And from a package perspective, most of our clients are shipping parcels greater than 20 pounds. And so, if we think of large dim or large size. Those types of packages come with unique constraints or unique attributes that make them challenging. They don't fit into a highly automated environment. They take a lot of real estate to store. They take a lot of manual labor to manipulate. So what we are good at and what we really cut our teeth on is enabling our clients to focus on what they do best by handling the really difficult part of the logistics side or warehousing and fulfilling and shipping those types of packages. So about 50% of what we ship is greater than 20 pounds and 90% of what we ship is going out through the common carriers, FedEx, UPS, uh, et cetera. Wow. So now when you say big and bulky, 
what kind of products are we talking about? Yeah, it's, it's easier to think of it as in product categories. So office furniture, there can be flat pack furniture, there can be chairs, things like that. Then it's outdoor equipment, garden tools, really anything that you think of that can be bought online and shipped and show up in a brown truck or a white truck with orange or purple on it. And it just happens to be a larger size. So outdoor is a big category. Office equipment is a big category. Office furniture. It, it's all of those types of things. And so what we really tell you know, our clients is what we do is focus on big, bulky, heavy, high value or high touch. You know, when it absolutely has to be right, you know, that's where we really focus. We focus less on the product and more around operational excellence and getting it right. And it just happens to be that we've we've really uh, you know, put our, a bow around the space of big, bulky, heavy, or high value. So you tell me I can ship an office chair, a small parcel? If it folds up the right way, you certainly can. I know. I know. Um, when you get to these kind of products, I remember this. I, I'm not a small parcel expert, but I have done some at the last company I was working with. And I remember they said, we can ship a hockey stick. I was like... Okay, so a hockey stick is long. It's not super heavy, but it is not. So the way the small parcel carriers look at that, though, they don't say, oh, that hockey stick is eight pounds. They look at it and say, you're going to get, is it, am I right to call it a dimensional weight? Yeah, you're going to get a dimensional weight. You might have some unique surcharges based on how it is sized. So it may weigh eight pounds. It could weigh two pounds but it's going to have a dimensional weight because it doesn't fit into a standard cube on a truck requires different types of manipulation in the sort centers, et cetera, for the carriers. So that's uh, one of the nuances of the business. And so when we think about it, you know, it's not just shipping a poly bag or, or a pouch. It's really being able to advise our clients on ways to optimize what they're shipping so that they can minimize excessive fees, or excessive is the wrong word. They can minimize the fees, the costs, and make sure that they can deliver you know, their product to their customer. You know, it, it really is about enabling them to focus on two things, merchandising and marketing, because they don't have to worry about all the logistics of getting the package to their end customer. Right. Am I right to say that a lot of, well, first off, I do know this. I talk to a lot of warehousing and fulfillment people. And a lot will say, and there's no no hate here. This is not what I'm saying. A lot of people will say, we love to sell. We love to move cosmetics, but not the ones that have to be temperature controlled. We love to sell. Somebody was telling me, I love to move Bic lighters, like those packs of Bic lighters. And I was like, okay. And what I think why is because those are all going small parcel. They're all relatively small. They don't take a ton of storage space. And... An operator can pick that up, relatively simple, put it in a bag, get a label on it. Now, when it's a chair that is folded up that has to somehow be put in a, you say, a poly bag, I don't even know what that is, but or a pouch of some sort, that's a whole different operation. And I've got to think there's lots of 3PLs that say, no thanks, <laughs> I don't want your business. I think people are probably sending people Go see the, I know they call Red Stag, you call the Red Stag, your team, the herd. Go see the herd for this one. <laughs> yeah, we, we, you're exactly right, Joe. We have a lot of relationships with other 3PLs that, you know, it, it, we don't view it as competition. It's probably co-opetition. You know, there are categories of work that we don't want to do because we have not optimized nor built a competency around executing those things. And pharmaceuticals or lipstick, Bic lighters would certainly fall into that category. And they don't want to do the big, bulky, heavy, or high value. So they, you know, that that office chair that's in a big box, it takes a two-man lift to put it on a, a an outbound conveyor. They send those to us. So we have a lot of relationships where we do partner in that way. And, you know, there's, there's a category profile where we would be competing, but it, it just, the binding constraints of the business are very, very different. And so we have to think about, you know, warehouse size very differently because of how much density we don't have. You know, we may fit 10 office chairs on a pallet. And if we have, you know, 
20,000 pallet spaces. That takes a lot more uh, real estate. So we're in the process right now of opening our, our newest warehouse, which is a 700,000 square foot warehouse wow. and you know, with 90,000 pallet spaces. So it just it takes at? a different approach. That's in Sweetwater, Tennessee, just down the road from uh, our headquarters here in Knoxville. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I will say you mentioned you're not for everybody. So a lot of people are pushing you and you say it's not necessarily competing against everybody, your cooperation. And I'll throw one other thing in there. And this has become a th- common theme for people listening to my podcast a lot. I think more and more we're realizing when it comes to warehousing and fulfillment, you can go out and sell. And I'm sure you have a sales team. But the sales team's job is maybe more important to say who doesn't fit here, here who's not a good fit. And there's a lot of companies that grew e-commerce companies that grew over the last five years, right? And as they grew, they came to e-commerce fulfillment companies like yours. And I know you do other kind of fulfillment, but they, and a lot of companies, the warehousing and fulfillment companies said, yes, yes, we can do that. Yes, we can do that. And then as they grew, they realized, oh my God, I've got like 10 customers that don't work for my model. So I think we're getting more and more specialized as warehousing and fulfillment companies. And I think we're going to find ourselves saying no a lot more. And and that's going to be for the benefit of the industry. <laughs> and there's just certain customers. And I, I've told small e-commerce players who call me saying, no one will work with me. And I said, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You have to find somebody small, but recognize that you're probably needier you don't have the tech stack there's a lot of things small players do that are really annoying for bigger companies (laughs) yeah i completely agree with you i think it it really a lot comes down to understanding what your core competencies are and where you can provide the most value to your target client and you know i tell our team all the time you know, we want to work with clients who believe what we believe. We have an alignment of values and we have an alignment of value proposition. And just because someone believes what we believe doesn't mean they're a great fit for us because we can't violate our brand promise and our ability to deliver just because we have a belief, we share the same core values. And and I can think of an example of a, a prospect we were working with uh, maybe a year or so ago. Who, who wanted us to take his business and, and showed me his list. These are the 10 3PLs I've spoken with and Red Stag, I want you guys, you do what we need. And you know, I had to tell him, I, I would love to do your business, but I can't faithfully execute our brand promise and commitment to excellence if we take your business on. And I'm not gonna fail you and I'm not gonna fail your customers by doing that. Now, let's stay in touch. And if we ever expand our, our you know, work lanes so we could do that, you know, it might be a good fit. So I think saying no, you know, it, it's important in all aspects of life, but it's especially important when you're talking about e-commerce fulfillment, which means as an organization, you've really got to understand your core competencies, your value proposition, and where you can create the most value for your target clients and create alignment and then make sure that there's a mutual value alignment. Cause if, if people don't believe what we believe it, you know, it doesn't matter if they happen to ship the same, the, the right stuff, we're not going to be a good fit. So there's multiple dimensions in play. Yep. I, last time we talked a few weeks ago, I told you, I used to work for a guy. He was a vice president at Chrysler of Jeep division. And I worked there and I was way low on the totem pole. I was work for an outside company, but we were, we managed stuff in Asia for Jeep. And I got to know Craig Wynn and he was a fantastic leader. And he's retired now. Well, he's, he's doing something, but he bought an engineering company. In, and I went to work for him. This was many years later. And I remember him saying, Joe, I want to work with right thinking guys, RTGs. And, and what he meant by that is they want to do, we were doing engineering, we we're doing automotive stuff. Uh, I want to work with people who get it, who work our way. I don't want to compromise the way we know is right to work with somebody. And what he means is that's a tough that's a tough bar to get over because not everybody wants to develop product the same way. No one wants to you know necessarily you know when I look at my fulfillment partner, you have a, a vision of what you guys want to be, and they they have a different vision. 
and you can't get that. <laughs> so so and a buddy of mine who worked with us, he said, yeah, he goes, RTGs is great. He goes, if it doesn't take you, take you out of the business. I was like, yes, that's the hard part. So <laughs> anyway, let's talk a little bit about you for a sec. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you joined the herd. And while you're talking about, first off, before we talk about you, tell, you called your team the herd. Please expand on that. Yeah, so we are the herd. Red Stag, uh, our, our logo is uh, the most majestic of the, of the deer, the Red Stag. And so a number of years ago, we, we, we didn't just say we have employees. We, we have team members. But we're the herd, so we are the herd collectively, and and we spend a lot of time talking about you know how do we take care of the herd. It is a a strategic, competitive focus for us. It's a pillar of our success is having a differentiated view on people. We just believe that people matter, and we believe that in order for us to build something special, we have to have a focus on people, and that's our herd. And so everything we do, you know, starts and and really focuses on our our teammates, our team members, our herd. And you know, we have a firm belief. Uh, I certainly do, and our entire leadership team believes that if we take care of our people, they take care of the client, and that's what takes care of the growth, the bottom line, the opportunities to do new things. But if you fail at taking care of your people, if you fail at putting the priority on those who do the work then you can't be surprised when the work isn't done well. And it's a hard job. You know, one of our core values is we sweat the small stuff. And, you know, I speak to every new hire group. We do quarterly town halls. And I get to speak to every teammate. And I always talk about our core values. And in all of our core values, my favorite word, single word is the word sweat. And from we sweat the small stuff. The reason I love it so much is it embodies the, the, the awareness that we do hard work. There's honor in hard work. There's a recognition that the work is hard. That doesn't mean it doesn't have value. And it doesn't mean that the person doing it doesn't have value. So you know, deeply passionate and committed to making sure that when it comes down to people, we will treat them with dignity and respect. And we will ensure that our herd is well, well cared for. Yeah. I think you used the term last time we talked, is that you're the boss. So you're, you're responsible for the care and feeding of the herd. You have to take care of, you are, you are the, you are the main tender of the herd. You're not the only one, but you're making sure the herd is, is uh, taken care of. I love it. Absolutely. Yeah. I work for them. A little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you be, t- took over the care and feeding of the herd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up in West Georgia and really from about the time I was 10, 11 years old was a bit of a, an entrepreneur. So my brother and I owned a landscaping business and we did that and we just did a whole bunch of things. So I remember being 11, my brother was eight. We had our, our first quote unquote contract with a local historical preservation society to go do their grounds maintenance, you know, every other week. And, you know, in an eight, 11 and eight year old fashion, it was a contract that was on a single piece of paper, but you know, there were signatures and there was an agreed upon amount. And we used that to, you know, fund our fun activities and all those things. So worked my way through college, had a, a phenomenal undergraduate experience and, you know, paid for it myself, worked my Where'd you go? I went to Columbus State University in West Georgia, UGA system school. And didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, but I knew that I, I was interested in psychology. I knew I was interested in history and then founded the study of management and leadership, organizational behavior, uh, and just fell in love with it and had taken a, a career step to go into banking. And at 16 years old, I had this naivete that was, I leveraged a network connection to go meet with the CEO of the local bank, Columbus Bank and Trust in Columbus, Georgia. And, and for an informational interview, and I remember sitting down at 16, I go in there with my coat and tie, I don't know anything, and walk into Sam's office and a phenomenal individual. And he says, well, Dusty, what can I help you with? And I said, well, Sam, I'd like to understand more about the leadership of your organization and decide if this is a place I would uh, like to work when I graduate college. And he, he, you know, thank goodness he didn't throw me out of his office right away. I mean, I was, I deserved it. I just, I, I had no context of how valuable that time was or how gracious he was in just hearing some 16 year old punk 
But what he shared with me that day was, well, you know, we believe that people matter and we believe in servant leadership. And so if there's an opportunity for you at, at the bank or in any organization, you know, here at, at CB&T, you know, it's really going to be come down to how you think about approach relationships with people. Do they work for you or do you work for them? And, and I'll never forget that. So that became one of my foundational principles. I carried it with me through, through college. I did go work at the bank as a teller because that was how you had to get in the system. And then had a, a couple of opportunities there and uh, was running call centers, large call centers, and then took an opportunity to go to AAA, the American Automobile Association, to do a call center relocation. So I grew up in, in the operation side of business, uh, taking care of people. Did not intend to stay at AAA for very long. In fact, I was you know, kind of adamant. This is a three-year resume stamp you know, to move a call center from Charlotte, North Carolina to Eastern North Carolina. I was the only team member I was get, you know, hired to build this up, hire everyone, start the culture. That's why I took the opportunity. As much as I love CB&T, I was like, ooh, this will be fun. But I fell in love with an organization that cared about members and it really put people first. And we knew that if we did our job well, somebody's wife, somebody's daughter, somebody was taken care of on the side of the road in the middle of the night. And, you know, that's work that matters. So uh, I had a, a very long career there, 21 years, and had did a number of different things, had tremendous blessings, able to serve in a number of ways. I was a bit of an entrepreneur during that time. So I'd take our startup businesses and help them grow and scale. And I left there at the very beginning of 2021, met the the folks that uh, own the herd and their own red stag and said that's a really interesting business model you know it's it's not very dissimilar from what i did at AAA. you know at AAA, we had to put the right truck in front of the right uh, to the right person at the right time and logistics is you know e-commerce logistics fulfillment's the same thing how do you fulfill the order you know you know get the right product on the right truck at the right time and you know threw my name in the hat was very blessed with you know, to go through a pro selection process of about 450 candidates and and come on board in May of 2021 to, to help shepherd the herd. So what was your first impressions of Red Stag, at, and not necessarily the company, but the industry? Because it was a, a switch. So all of a sudden you went from a whole bunch of people sat at desks to a whole bunch of people who were running a massive warehouse and the crazy nature of warehousing and fulfillment. Yeah, it's it's... It's interesting. It's, it's a great question. The first, my first thought was, I can't believe that operational excellence is a competitive differentiator. That simply getting it right is a, a leg up the bar. You know, I, I've always viewed that as a entry price to the game. And what I mean by that is, you know, at Red Stack, we have value. Part of our value prop is our service guarantee. So if we don't ship on time, or if we have a mispick, or if we lose or damage inventory, or if we don't receive your inventory within the you know an agreed upon time frame, you know we pay for that. We pay our clients a penalty for our mistakes. You know, and philosophically, I love that. You know, why should a client pay for something that we did wrong? Why should you know we should not only be accountable, we you know with a, an attitude of ownership, we should be responsible for that. So my first impression was I couldn't believe that operational excellence is a competitive differentiator, number one. Number two, I would say, but maybe more strategically, I couldn't believe that, and, and, and I still think this is the case, I could be wrong, I'm wrong about a lot of things, <laughs> that a focus on client value is secondary to operational value. And what I mean by that is the, the a lot of the industry is phenomenal warehouse and fulfillment organizations. And that's great. But the client doesn't necessarily just need phenomenal warehouse and fulfillment organizations. They need somebody who solves their problems. So that means you must be client-centric. That means you must be seeking to understand first before you can decide whether or not what you do fits. And I think it's just a different approach that we have here at Red Stag. And it comes from being born out of e-commerce. Our founders were e-commerce entrepreneurs. So we we wear our label of uh, recovering e-commerce merchants very proudly and, and have to remind ourselves, you know, if you're sitting on the side of the table where you're you're worried about, do I have enough product? Have I got the marketing right? Do it, you know, are our product designs going well? How do I sell more stuff? 
everything that goes on in the logistics side of the the uh, the arena there while critically important it's a debit to your ability to just drive revenue through your website and sales so it's it's been a wonderful journey and at the end of the day it comes down to the same same tenets that i would say are are in in any labor-intensive business it's all about people and so those are the most common similarities between what i do do here and what i did at uh, aaa i noticed you uh, have the iron man triathlon on your back wall there so you you ran the iron man a number of times you told me yeah, I've done uh, five different Ironman races. And where were they at? Florida, Arizona, Maryland, North Carolina, and Lake Tahoe, California. So for people who don't know what that is, please tell them what that an Ironman triathlon is. For sane people. <laughs> Principally, it's an exercise in extreme stupidity and maybe some narcissism. It, it, it's an ultra-endurance event where it's a 2.4-mile swim followed by a 112-mile bike ride and then the running of a marathon, and you have 17 hours to complete that in one day. Yeah, and I seem to remember reading, this is probably 30 years ago, 40 years ago, when I first read about triathlons. That was when they first started doing the Ironman, and I remember I did some short-course triathlons, and what I was always stunned by is, I think it was three guys had started it in Hawaii, and one said, one guy was a runner, and he said to his buddies, nothing's harder athletically than running a marathon. And his buddy said, oh, that's 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 nonsense. Riding your bike 100 and plus miles, I think it was 112 miles, is way harder. Doing a century is harder. And then the other guy's like, third guy was there, third friend, says, that's nonsense. Swim two miles in the ocean. And so... Somehow from this, I, I got to think beer is involved. <laughs> they said, let's create a race where we do all three. And by the way, I did a marathon one time. I was young then. Man, that's kicked my ass. And I, I remember even when I got done thinking, I'm glad I did it, but I'm never doing it again. And I also felt like this wasn't for my health because it didn't feel healthy. <laughs> but I will say uh, for me... When I see that you did that Ironman triathlon, I, my first thought is, you know how to push yourself and you know how to grind. And that's always what I think when I say somebody who's achieved something like that athletically. Yeah, it, it's, it is a, a grind. And you know, I never started a race where I was worried about finishing because I had done the work, right? The race was the reward. If I know I had friends or I'd see people at the start of a race, you know, and it's pretty cool because 2,500 people would start at one time. So it's a bit of a mixed martial arts match in the water. And, but people would be so nervous and so worried and like, you can only control what you can control. And, and that all happened in the months leading up to the actual race where you did the work and you had the plan, you followed the plan, you did the effort and you grinded through you know, I can remember many Thursday mornings were my long run mornings, you know, waking up at three to go do a 20 mile run before work, because that was when I could get it done. And you just had to do it. And the the other choice was to allow yourself to have fear or doubt or failure opportunity. So you do the work, right? And and, and I think that's what I learned from the process. You know, I'm, I have a bit of a, a challenge mindset in that, you know, I did a I think it was a sprint triathlon first and went, well, that was fun. What's the hardest thing I can do? And signed up for an Ironman. So again, I wouldn't say that IQ would be the thing I scored on the highest, but you know, grit and determination was, uh, I, did, I did fairly well. at. I come to the conclusion now during COVID, which I, somebody once said in my podcast, COVID-19 or 20, referring to the weight that many of us gained. And I remember my gym closed and I'm sitting around the house not working as much and eating nachos, drinking uh, sangria. I just, and I remember I ran across David Goggins, who was on Joe Rogan, and I thought, oh, wow, this guy's talking about pushing himself. And the whole Navy SEAL thing, and I'm sure this applies also to uh, the Iron Man, it, it's that whole idea of getting comfortable being uncomfortable and putting yourself in uncomfortable situations and pushing yourself. And there's something that happens to you when you are able to push through and say, I really don't want to do this. I'm exhausted. I'm going to keep pushing. And I remember I took my fat ass outside and went for a walk and it was raining out and it was um, 
like March. It was raining sideways, and I was like that. And I kept thinking about like how good it felt, and I, I had forgotten. We, we seek comfort so often. It is our default position as humans to seek comfort, and there's nothing wrong with that if you've already pushed yourself for a long part of the day. And I'm just absolutely become ever since then. Now I'm not saying I don't fall back. We all do, but. I've become really obsessed with the idea, how do I keep pushing myself? And I'm not doing an Ironman. I'm just trying to get my, myself to the gym four days a week, right? And it's, I'm also kind of convinced that when we have, uh, a lot of us are overweight, myself included. But I keep thinking depression, weight gain, all these things are tied to us wanting to eat comfort food and sit down and, and uh, relax and snuggle up because it's cold. And what we need is kind of more of the opposite, which is get outside, be cold, be uncomfortable, get that walk in, be sore and tired when you get in bed. <laughs> and when people say, I can't sleep, I sometimes think we've all struggled with that. But if you exhaust yourself because you were outside working out, working hard, doing something physical, you sleep better. I couldn't agree with you more. And so it's, I feel like we could go down a long rabbit hole here. Right, 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 right. There's, right. there's a there's a fascinating book if you haven't read it, I'd highly recommend called "The Comfort Crisis" by Michael Easter, I believe it is. And and what he writes about is the the challenge that we have as a society with being comfortable. And so people do their best work, their most creative work when they have created a place to be uncomfortable physically. I know that's the case for me. I do my best work when I have made the physical challenges a priority. And so I know that it's so easy to put that off as a task to be done. And I have to remind myself that all the time. I, I need to go get uncomfortable so that I can be better at what it is that I do as a vocation, but highly recommend it. And, and he talks about you know, the principle of a masogi, which is a Japanese philosophy. And it's, it's doing something really, really hard, like, you know, 50% chance of success in, in what you, you do, you set this goal. In fact, well, I think there were three rules to masogi, which I love because, you know, the first rule, kind of the entry rule, like fight clubs, you don't talk about masogi. It's not a masogi. If you're telling everybody, Hey, I'm going to go do this really hard thing. Cause you're not, it's not about you. It's about, you know, it's not about what you're, what you're telling others. But the, the other, the two rules that I followed that one were, it's got to be really hard, like 50% chance of success. Uh, and rule number two, you can't die. Like that, that seems to be like that. You don't die. Don't put yourself in a position where you get Good killed. Good plan. <laughs> that seems like that's a reasonable expectation. I remember my rules for, uh, for Ironman were, you know, I always had a series of goals, but my, my, my minimum threshold of success goal was don't drown, don't crash, don't break a leg, don't trip and fall. Like if I, if I can get through those uh, three elements of the triathlon, that's a good day. Yep. Yep. But I will say when you learn to push yourself physically, it's also, I've been honest, this is my observation. I interview a lot of people on my podcast and most all of them are successful like you. They're able to have difficult conversations, which many of us, um, all of us, want to avoid. You want to avoid them too, but they have to be had. People have to be let go. People have to be um, reprimanded. You have to have difficult conversations about failure, things you did wrong, things your team did wrong, things you don't, firing customers. I've said this to my um, nephew, the, he's 17, and he's a bright young man, very good student, very good kid. And I told him, I said, the reason your dad is so successful is because he's good at doing things he doesn't want to do sometimes. <laughs> and, I, and I've always think when I talk to people like yourself, if you push yourself physically, then you can go to work the next day and say, you know what? I just ran 20 some miles. I guess I can have this uncomfortable conversation. That, and, and that's how we improve. If you say, Joe, I know you pride yourself in doing this, this, and this, but you know what you're doing wrong? is this, this, and this. Oh, okay. Hard conversation, but it makes me better. <laughs> anyway. Could not agree more. Amen. Let's switch gears. So speaking of doing hard things, fulfilling big, bulky, small parcels, that is really hard. And most companies, I don't think, will do that. If I go to the average fulfillment company, they say you don't fit. And by the way, I'm going to say one other thing. 
what I keep coming back to the idea of don't fit. Amazon has told a lot of people in recent years, you don't fit our model. Amazon, fulfillment by Amazon doesn't work for everybody. They're making it, you can't store stuff at their warehouses. They're not a storage facility. UPS and FedEx, some of the great companies in our space, are saying you don't fit. And the way they tell you don't fit is by raising the price on that. So we are finding the best logistics companies out there are saying you don't fit. And I think when a lot of people are probably telling these big and bulky shippers, you don't fit, go, go to the herd. <laughs> so talk talk about some of the challenges you guys have had. And then also, I mean, what, what percentage of the freight do you do that other people would never do? I mean, I've just got to think there's some segment that no one wants anymore. Yeah. So the, the, just kind of start with the, the last first, you know, we get a lot of prospects that come into our pipeline that are shipping the typical lipstick, cosmetics, things like that. And that's what we don't want to do. Uh, I think it was Michael Porter who said the essence of strategy is knowing what to say no to. And I'm paraphrasing. But you could do that. You just don't want to. We could do that. But in order to do that, we would likely in our current world diminish our capacity and capability to do what we do best. And, you know, there could be a time and a place where that makes sense, but it's not now. And, you know, so I want to preserve optionality for the future, but I don't want to diminish our capability in the present by doing it. And so we're shipping, you know, fully more than 50% of what we ship, uh, as I think I said, is more than 20 pounds. And, and we have stuff that's over a hundred pounds, you know, that we have to work with carriers to make sure we can get it under the right dim size or under the right weight loads. So, you know, a, a client will come to us and say, this is what I want to do. And then we, we try to put our, our client hat on and go, what is the problem you're trying to solve? You know, what are the issues you're experiencing with delivery today? You know, are you, are you space constrained? Are you labor constrained? Are you, you know, cost constrained? You know, I think it's, it's, if you, miss ship that tube of lipstick from a forward place 3PL that, you know, from it's in the Atlanta market, just pick a, a market and, and you're, you're out of the skew in Atlanta where you need to ship. And, and so you have to ship it from a Seattle market. It's going to cost a little bit more, but it's not going to cost a lot more from a client perspective. If you're shipping a 75 or hundred pound box and you're out in the wrong location and you ship that across the country, Suddenly, that's that's you know incredibly depressing to margin, and you know one lens on that from a three PL perspective could be well that's best for us, but the right lens is what's best for the client. How do we work to ensure that the client has the right inventory in the right place to minimize working capital requirements and the amount of inventory they have to have, and to minimize the likelihood of a miss ship or, you know, having to you know, ship a, a product across the country. So it's, it's thinking with that lens first, that I think is a, a differentiator. And it just happens to be that we ship larger products and there are some unique uh, attributes to that, that those product profiles that enable us to create value. And, it, but it's hard. I mean, I'm not going to lie. There's, you know, uh, one of our favorite things, uh, we talk about doing hard things. Our entire leadership team uh, works in the warehouse for all of the holiday season. So we have Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Cyber Week. We work production. We pick, we pack, we ship, we load boxes uh, on trucks. And uh, I'll never forget last year, the day after Cyber Monday, our general counsel, Todd Folks, uh, was uh, in the office and I said, Todd, how are you? He goes, I'm sore. So I was loading, you know, boxes on a on a FedEx truck for three hours yesterday, and he says, and it, it, I laughed out loud. He says, I haven't been work, I haven't worked that hard since two a days back in college playing baseball. So, you know, it, it's hard work. But the reason it's our favorite day and favorite season is we get to work alongside our team. And and you know, I tell I tell everybody, I'm like, I'm here to pick, pack, and ship today. Your job is to make sure I don't screw anything up. You know, I don't want to break our brand promise because I don't do this every day and you're the expert. So yell at me if you need to get my attention. Don't let me make a mistake that puts our client at risk. It, it's not easy work, but knowing that, understanding that, and then knowing what you need to be good at 
that that is different for this space is is tremendously important. But but it starts with the client side lens. It starts with what is the problem they're trying to solve. So you you how many days a, a year are you actually pick packing and shipping? Not enough. In full transparency, not enough. I probably I know I did it in the holiday season. I try to get out there a couple times a quarter. To be honest with you, that's an area opportunity for me. I would say I interview a lot of people. I've never heard anybody, <laughs> an owner or uh, an exec team member, say they've done it one hour. I'm sure they have. But I think that is telling of the organization you guys are built, have built. And I got to tell you, I have uh, it's a distant relative. And I won't mention the company, but they had labor problems. And they were building construction equipment. And so they had the, the union walk out and my my distant relative, good guy, went to college, was a head of strategy, but two days a week for a long time, he was on the assembly line. And he said, it'd be crazy. He goes, you're dressed kind of to work on the line. He goes, and I'm, I'm doing strategy and I'm going to meet with the CEO next week. And he says, and then... You know, I look at my clock. Oh, it's time, and I go outside and I work on the. I work in the assembly plant. And he said, oh, "We got horrible to have labor problems, obviously." But he said the insights we gained over that few years, and it was a few years, was special. He said, "He goes and he goes and I actually started looking forward to some of it because I got out of my head." He says, "I would leave my desk where I've got a million things." hitting me, ping, ping, ping. I got a thousand emails. I got to do this. I got to do that. And then I go out and I have to focus on this work that is very hard. And he says, it needs your full full attention. And he said, but then once the union came back, he said, we, we had to renegotiate with them because we had changed a lot of jobs. He says, because we all of a sudden realized we drove extra work. We we thought we were so smart up there in our office, but we caused a lot of problems to this back room. I mean, to this, uh, the assembly plant was in the back. And I was thinking, oh, isn't that interesting? So I bet you, I bet you come back with not only newfound appreciation, but also saying, how can I make, how can I make it easier for the herd? Because I know I'm going to be back out there in a, in a, in a few weeks. I'm going to be back out there. I want my job to be a little easier. Yeah, it, you're absolutely right, and it is. It's so much fun. I mean, it is my favorite. Like the holiday season is my favorite time of year, and it's not just because I feel like I can overeat on Thanksgiving Day because I'm going to work it all off the next day. <laughs> It's, it's because you do get to learn, you do get to serve alongside. And, you know, we, as I have been working with, you know, the, the team and recruiting leadership into the organization, you know, I'm very clear, this is who we are. You know, you, if, if you want to be in an office in an ivory tower, we're not the org. You're going to work Black Friday, you're going to work Cyber Monday, and it's, it's going to be in the warehouse and you're going to get dirty and that's okay. You know, our first week for all, you know, new leaders and executive onboarding, whatever is warehouse training. And so we, we learned that our first week and you do, you learn so much when you go do it and you come back and you go, well, if, if we did this and this and this, we'd be operationally more efficient. We'd be taking better care of our clients. You know, it, it, it's, it's the little things that you observe that make such a difference. And it allows us to reinforce our core values. It allows us to reinforce our desired behaviors. You know, I remember this past year working uh, a bulk outbound line and one of our uh, team members was, made, he, he was standing there after he put the label on the box, he's got a rag and he's wiping the box off. Now this box is, you know, it wasn't even dirty. He was just, it, it was his degree of ownership, which is one of our core values, act like an owner, to ensure that it was perfect before it goes and gets on a FedEx truck or a UPS truck or wherever it was, it's going to get, you know, hustled and bustled and dinged and all along the way. But when it left his station, it was going to be right. And I just remember sitting there going, that's a person that gets it. That's a person that belongs to the herd. And they set an example. They're one of our herd heroes. They set an example for all of us what, about what great looks like. Yeah. And I got to think also... Your team relates to you so differently because when somebody says, hey, we should tell Dusty. Well, Dusty is the big boss. I do not want to go down the hall and see him because he's the boss's boss. And no, 
No, and they go, no, Dusty is the guy who worked on the line who kept screwing things up last <laughs> last Black Friday. I had to train that idiot. They relate to you differently, I guarantee it, because you have worked side by side with them. And that is different. And again, I mentioned my friend Craig Wynn. He had thousands of engineers and techs working for him, and he knew everybody's name. And I remember how special it was for me as a young engineer that – this guy who had thousands of people said, hey, Joe, how's it going? In the hallway. And my my coworkers are like, you know Craig? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in a meeting with him. And I was like, I, I had no reason to be in the meeting. I was in the meeting, though. And that that changes things. That, you talked about culture, but that's a culture move right there. Joe, I couldn't. It, it is so much fun. And this is where, you know, I, I, I have to counsel myself because I don't get to spend enough time doing it. But just to walk through the warehouse and high five and fist bump and, you know, shout across the floor and, you know, say, Hey, yo, man, I hear you, man. And I see you kicking tail today, buddy. And it, it, it is fun. You know, we, we hear from our clients and prospects all the time when they come to our warehouses, they can tell a difference. And, and I've been around working environments my entire career you can tell within 30 seconds of walking into any space if the culture is strong, if the people care. And and are we perfect? Absolutely not. We have tons of opportunities for improvement. You know, we are always thinking about ways we can get better. It's another one of our core values, you know, find a way to improve. But we can always find a way to, to show our team that we care. It's just fine. You can tell. And it, it's the highlight of my day is when I get to walk through the warehouse and do some fist bumps, some high fives to learn some things. And the best part, the best part of my job is the holiday season where I get to be yelled at and it, with, with love, with gentleness when I'm screwing things up. Yeah. My buddy Chana, I just saw him at Manifest with his wife. He, is, he and his brother are founders of a company called Rabat. R-A-B-O-T. And they are the king of the pack stations. Because So if you're packing something into a box, they take a, they have technology. They will scan what's, what's going in the box, make sure it's the right stuff, right? So when he started the company, he there's an app you can get on your phone that tells you how to get a job in a warehouse. And he got six warehouses, six warehouse jobs in three months across this great country of ours. I think he was in Los Angeles. I think he was in Texas. And then he was out, out east. Six six warehousing and fulfillment companies he worked at. And again, he's the CEO of a company. And he did six over three months. And he said, invaluable time. He said, because every warehouse has its own way of doing things. Every warehouse has its own problems, own culture, own kind of customers. And he said, I learned how the technology was working and not working. And so whenever for the rest of his life, when somebody says, no, Chana, you don't get it. He says, I do get it. I, I, I don't get it as well as you do, but I have walked a little bit in your shoes. And I think that is that what you do, what you do and what Chana does is exactly how we need to treat this. And it's not, it's nobody has the time for that. I guarantee you don't have time to be in the warehouse. You don't have time to go on Black Friday to do that. But you said, this is such a high priority. I'm going to do it. Yeah, I love China's approach. Yeah. So let's get back to big and bulky. We all have seen Amazon's uh, warehousing conveyor belts and that the process and the automation. When I'm big and bulky stuff, how can I automate? I mean... It's one thing to automate when I'm, I'm moving mouse, you know, computer mouse or a, a mobile phone. It's a whole other thing if it's a hockey stick or a giant vase or a chair that's broken down. How, how do you automate? I mean, how does this work? Yeah, I think you have to think through the lens of, of the how is the, what is the construct of the problem you're trying to solve. And so, you know, and if if you could probably build some automation if there was it was big and bulky, but everything was exactly the same size or same dimension. And it's but not. Have, <laughs> it's not in a three PL world. You know, it, it's certainly not right. So we could be doing a flat pack desk, and then an office chair, and then a kettlebell or a trailer hitch, or you know, you name it. Whoa, you're moving kettlebells. We move some kettlebells. That's where you get stronger. And so when you do things like that. 
there's not a robot yet that has the degree of variability to go handle that type in a, in a fully automated environment. So you have to think about it as automation differently. And I think, you know, it can be easy to fall in love with automation and robots and all those things and, and instead go, what is the biggest impediment to operational efficiency? What's the biggest impediment to effectiveness? What's the biggest impact on our people? How do we take load off of the system or out of the system appropriately. So for us, you know, we're not going to be today a highly automated environment where, you know, we have one person manning a sea of robots. Technology changes, things change, you know, there, there will be evolution, but it's really about how do we make the job simpler, easier, and how do we create more efficiency and more effectiveness downstream from that? So you know, those are things we're exploring. Those are things that we're, we're doing, but it, it can be as simple as lift assist on a, on a lot, on a conveyor line. So you don't take two people to do it. You have one, or you do things like uh, exosuits where we're testing an exosuit that a person could wear that takes wear and tear off the body. That's like an ectoskeleton. So uh, you, you're supporting their body almost like they're a, a half a robot, like a a cyborg almost <laughs> yeah it's, it's really it's not about a mechanical um, and I actually serve on the board for the for the company but because it, it, it's really about how do you how do you reduce uh, wear and tear how do you create uh, you know how, how do you enhance productivity over time so when somebody's coming in first part of the day they're going to be more productive less tired than they are the last you know, two hours a day, first two hours a day, last two hours a day. Well, when you get tired, you have higher likelihood of injury. When you get tired, your production rates go down. When you get tired, when you leave to go home and go back to your communities, you have less of yourself to give to your family, to your your, your neighbors, et cetera. So how do you enhance that? So for us, I, I think about automation a little bit differently. I think about it through the lens of how do we ensure that we become more operationally efficient and effective? How do we ensure that our herd is best positioned to be uh, successful, you know, not just when they get to work, but when they go home from work? And how do we reinforce to our team that, you know, we, we care? Now, there, there's probably opportunities we haven't explored far enough yet, and that we're going to be, but it, it is not a, a warehouse of, full of uh, R2-D2s uh, in our environment. I got to think also, again, this gets back to the, the care and feeding of the herd. When you and your executive team are out on that floor actually doing those jobs, you have new respect for your team, obviously, but also you go, God almighty, that job is too hard for somebody to do all day. And um, you start to recognize these functions right here are too hard. Those have to be done because we're going to lose people. And by the way, I'm an automotive guy originally. I remember when I first started in automotive, I was, if you worked in an assembly plant, you were get, you were, at the end of the day, you were sweaty, you were dirty, you were tired, and potentially hurt. And if you weren't hurt that day, you might have been hurt over time because you had to crouch every day or stand on your tiptoes every day or lift something too heavy. By the time I left automotive 15 years ago, it had changed. I remember we would walk through an assembly plant and go, that job is too hard. That guy shouldn't have to do that. We're going to put him in the hospital. And you start to also realize not only is it a culture thing, not only is it just a human respect thing, but it starts to be a money thing where you say, we can't keep putting people in the hospital. We can't ruin everybody's back here. And I think that we're going to see more and more of that in the warehouse. But again, the best way to automate your warehouse is to work in your warehouse. <laughs> you yeah, you're, you're, you're spot on. Our COO, it was so funny. I, I'll tell a little story about him. Our COO last holiday season, Black Friday, he ran a stock picker uh, the entire day. So, you know, he did a 12 or 14 hour shift on a stock picker, whatever it was. And he set the all time company record for number of inventory drops in a day. And, you know, he did that. Wait, to well, does that mean you dropping something? I don't know what inventory drop is. Well, sorry, inventory drop, not dropping anything. Let me make very clear for anybody who hears this. We don't drop inventory. <laughs> I got to say it. <laughs> If we did, we would own it. If we have inventory way up in the racks and we need to go pull it down to be, to enable it, to stage it, to be shipped, then pulling it out, dropping it to a, a pickable location inventory is what we call an inventory drop. And he set the all-time record. Now, he learned a lot. And I don't know, because he came back from that day and said, hey, here's some opportunities. We're going to make some tweaks. We're going to adjust. We're going to 
lever some some solutions here. Now, the best part of the whole story is he set the company record on Friday, and on Sunday that record was was uh, taken back by the previous record holder and doubled again. So you know, it just goes to show that hey. When you go do the job, you get an appreciation for the job, but you also kind of, you, you, the rest of the team go, you're not a professional. Let me show you how it's done. Yeah, yeah. I, I love I love what you're doing. And again, you speak to the culture. It's it's really easy to talk about a culture. I, I, I worked for a company many years ago. It was an engineering company. And I remember I saw a PowerPoint presentation that they were presenting, and it had our mission, our vision, our culture, and and I wasn't supposed to get this, but I, I saw it anyway. And I was like, we don't, this isn't our culture. This, uh, I've never heard this vision. I've never seen this mission. It was, it was crap. It was lies. It was lies for a bank loan. And I remember thinking, I thought less of them. I thought less of the company. And, and it was a company that I loved to be at. And we did have a culture, but that wasn't it. And I started realizing the guys in the the owners and the senior management are playing house. They're playing house down the hall. We're out here developing new 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 designs for cars, and they're in their playing house. And I use that term meaning they're playing, they're pretending, and I hate that. You guys aren't playing house. You are out doing the job. There's no better way to show your people you care than to get out there and do the work. So I'll tell you what. There's another thing. The customers, when I like to think someone listens to this and says, geez, that's the kind of company I want to, I want to work with. That's the kind of cu- culture we should have. That's the kind of partner we should have. It's, it's, we don't get enough of that. Again, I think we get so enamored. We all, we all hear these uh, million-dollar stock options and all the other uh, stuff that catches our attention, but it's not real. This is real. Yeah, you know, and Joe, I think you're right. You know, I think I said earlier we're – you know, we want to work with people who believe what we believe. And so, and I think there is a gravitational pull that happens uh, when you get that synergistic approach and you know, it's about mutual value creation. And, you know, our clients who, you know, who we work with and will say, hey, you know, what is it you value the most? They say, we don't have to worry about anything in the warehouse. We can do uh, our job and take care of our customers. But I would say, you know, we're not perfect. You know, so uh, I don't want anyone to hear this go, oh, they're perfect or they're, you know, no, no, we're always learning. And, you know, in, in order to serve a team, you must listen and learn. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, I believe in servant leadership. You know, a lot of people mistake servant leadership to stand for soft or, you know, hugs and kumbaya. And it's not that at all. It is about ensuring that people are in a position to be successful. And sometimes that means they can't be successful here. It's not an environment that is conducive to what they need and want and what we need and want aren't aligned. But we're not perfect. We're going to get better at it every day. But it's the greatest privilege and honor in the world to be able to serve your team and and be able to say, hey, we, we aren't where we want to be, but we know where we're going and we're going to get there and we need your help to do it. Yeah, I love it. I love what I love what you're doing. And I and again, the fact that you say you're not perfect, that's I want I want a partner who recognizes they're not perfect. Uh, I don't want somebody who's you know, making un, unrealistic promises. I don't want I don't none of us need those lies. And by the way, I I also feel like I, I worked for an organization that said we're going to improve their culture. It was a huge organization. I remember we had to take these culture surveys. And then we had to get together with teams, and I remember somebody said, "Hey, what we're, one of the ideas is we're going to have Hawaiian Shirt Day, and after work we're all going to go to this place, and we're going to at a bar, and there's games and stuff." And I was like, "And uh, my boss goes, what's that look on your face?" I said, I, "I want to come here. I want to be on really difficult projects where we fight through, launch launch a car, and and our and then go out and celebrate something real. I don't want to wear." silly clothes and go play games and say this is somehow how we're uh, how I'm a better man I'm not I I can I don't want to dress like that I don't want to go play games I want to do important work I want to stretch myself and I want to be on a team like that and it's a funny thing where you say culture isn't about being soft it's it's about being respectful it's about but you also need to be pushed a little bit amen I love it and so let's wrap this bad boy up so I like to interview smart, interesting people like you. 
who else should I talk to? Yeah, so there's there's a couple people that come to mind in the space. One is a guy named Matt Hertz, who runs an organization called Second Marathon. What do they do? They they're, they're a matchmaker for brands and 3PLs or brands and logistics partners. And I met Matt at a conference a couple of years ago and really love the client-centric, the brand-centric approach. He lives on the brand side of the house and, and, and fulfilled on the operation side. So I think he's a super smart, interesting person, deeply customer-centric. It's why I uh, have so much respect for him. Another name that comes to mind is a guy by the name of Mark Harris. Mark is the CEO of a company called HeroWare Exo, and they're doing some really interesting things in the space of the exosuits and enabling organizations and people. I love that. I have not had anyone like that. He's a great guy, super passionate, and 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 is going to make a real difference in the lives of others. And it's so easy to spend all of your effort and energy thinking about margin and unit economics and opportunities to grow the businesses strategically and forget that these are real human beings and real lives that you're impacting. And I think that you have to retain that. So those are two names I'd recommend. I love the idea of making the job in the warehouse better. And I think we have to start looking at this as a job that is the first step in the supply chain business. Not I'm a strong back and I can walk along all day long because most of us can't do that our whole lives. We have to get these so they're part of the supply chain and recognize we're part of the supply chain because it's a tough job. There's nothing wrong with doing a tough job, but I think we're all looking and saying, okay, one day I like to think I'm not doing that same heavy lifting at 40 years old. Cause, um, and and these the idea of this exoware, I love that. And the lift assist, all the stuff that we can use to make this job more efficient, more effective, but also livable. Because we are having a hard time getting people to go into warehouses. We are having a hard time getting people to drive trucks. This is the foundation the rest of us are, are working from. We can't get truck drivers to drive trucks. We can't get people to walk work into the warehouses. Just why buy, wave bye-bye to all your cool tech. <laughs> It doesn't matter if you don't have the uh, the people in the place to do the work that matters. Yep. So I'm going to ask you, answer in any order you want. What's next for you, Dusty? What's next for the herd, the Red Stag fulfillment team? And then what do you? What's next for big and bulky in general when it comes to uh, uh, fulfillment? Yeah. So so what's next? I'll take the kind of reverse order. I hate talking about myself. So <laughs> what's next for Big Bulky? I, I think there's tremendous growth opportunity. Uh, obviously, e-commerce had a huge explosion with COVID. That's not going to go away. I think that you know how products are being shipped is, is going to continue. You know, people want to have it at their front door. I think the omni-channel uh, is going to be continue to grow. Uh, and it's just going to be really interesting and neat to see how, how companies enable their customers to get what they want and and do so in a manner that's efficient and do so in a manner that meets their needs. And, and so companies like ours are going to have to pay a lot of attention, uh, not just to you know what we do, but we're going to have to pay a, a lot of attention to what the end customer wants so that we can make smart decisions to enable the our clients to be successful. Uh, in hitting their target market. So, you know, we have to be customer-centric and, and not just client-centric. We have to understand those things. So I think that's uh, what's going to be really interesting over the next years in, in, the, in the space. You know, for us as, as Red Stag, we are growing. We are uh, operationalizing our new uh, Sweetwater warehouse. And, you know, you walk into a 700,000 square foot warehouse, you have a, a whole different sense of what big is. And, and so solving some of those unique challenges that come from space that's that large means you have to think about the problems differently. You have to solve for those. So I'm, I'm super excited about what our team is doing to, to, to do that and to bring value to our clients through, through having those types of, of resources available. Uh, and then next for me, you know, it, it's really about just having new opportunities to serve the team and, and push myself further and push my my own growth and development so that I can be a better leader for and servant of uh, our team members. You know, if I'm not learning, if I'm not reading, if I'm not challenging myself physically and mentally, then I am sub-optimizing my contributions to the herd. Excellent. Excellent. So who's the, who's the sweet spot for 
Red Stag Fulfillment? Who do you who who do you serve best? Yeah, we serve best those clients who who are you know doing the e-commerce direct to consumer. They have a, a, a subset uh, or a significant subset of their packages are going to be you know greater than ten to fifteen pounds. Particularly interesting if they have you know larger dims. So you know it's not just weight; it's it's the unique sizes. And they're shipping you know five hundred plus packages a month, and you know they need. They need a partner to help them grow their business and take the heavy lifting of logistics off their shoulders so they can just think about how do I sell more stuff? How do I make a happier customer? You know, we like to talk about, you know, our job is to help ensure that our clients get five-star reviews on their website because the product shipped accurately, shipped on time, and it got there, you know, quickly. So uh, those clients who care about those things, that's our ideal customer. Uh, I look at the package size kind of secondary, but the clients who care about getting it right for their customer and have a, have a really tightly attuned customer experience ethos, that's who we uh, serve best. Excellent. Excellent. Well, really appreciate you having you on the podcast. What what conferences will we see you guys at? You know, I was just uh, sitting down earlier this week to start looking at a conference schedule. So we're we're still working on that, but we'll we'll be attending a number of the conferences. Uh, I didn't go to Shop Talk this year. I certainly uh, I hated missing that one. But that's a great question, and I'll be sure and let you know because I honestly don't know that off the top of my head just yet. <laughs> Well, what I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, a link to your website, and any other links you give me so people can reach out and talk to you. And Dusty, I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, yeah, I love what you guys are. I, I love that you picked this cool niche, but I also love what you're doing, the leadership that you're bringing to this party. It's a breath of fresh air. Thank you. Well, thank you, Joe. It's an honor to serve our team. I love having this conversation. I feel like I could talk longer. And uh, anybody who's still listening after this is probably afraid to go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem with my big mouth. <laughs> me too. Thank you so much. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like button, and leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen. Also, please check out our videos on YouTube and connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very big on LinkedIn. And you can also reach us on the logisticsoflogistics.com, our website.